The resume has become a very important document in our culture. The resume. Universities offer courses on resume writing and resume building. Concern for the depth and the quality of one's resume begins early on in life. I remember many years ago when I was working in youth ministry that one of the constant phrases that I would hear students say is this, it'll look good on my resume. I mean, it guided so many of their decisions, how this will show up on my resume. They would hope that their years in the chess club would demonstrate thoughtfulness or or their participation in sports would, would demonstrate leadership capacities. Their primary focus was to build their resume. They felt the need to prove themselves, to prove their value through their performance. Their hope was that down the road, someone would look at that little piece of paper and say, ah, you're good. Ah, you're desirable. We want you on our team. We want you to be a part of our company. Their hope was to gain acceptance through this little piece of paper. And many of us can relate. We know the the feeling of having this little piece of paper scrutinized, most of us, don't we? We know some of the pressure and anxiety that we feel whenever we have to present that little piece of paper to someone else for their scrutiny, and they are going to make a judgment on whether or not they want us, whether or not they will extend an offer to us. But if you look beneath the surface, you will notice that this, this way of thinking It's very reflective of our spirituality, oftentimes. If you think about spiritual things, spirituality, beneath the surface, what you will recognize is many of us have this mentality when it comes to our understanding of the way that people are to relate to God. In other words, we believe, whether we realize it or not, sometimes it's subconscious and we don't even realize we do it, but Many of us, most of us, at some time or another, have been convinced that we must build our resume and present it before God so that he will accept us, so that he would extend an offer to us, so that he might be impressed with us and then invite us into relationship with him. And it's no exaggeration, friends to say that this idea helps us to get at the heart of what is distinct about Christianity. The difference between Christianity and every other faith boils down to this very issue right here. This very question of your resume before God. What is it that you are presenting before God as your means of acceptance? It's no exaggeration to say that this is the determinative factor. This this is the theme we're going to cover today, friends. We are going to cover through our series on working together for the advancement of the gospel, our series working together for the gospel. This is a key point that we need to develop today to understand how Paul is, is spurring his friends on to work together for the sake of the the gospel's advancement. Because you can make the case here, you can make the case here, that you cannot, we cannot work together for the advancement of the gospel unless we know the freedom of the gospel and maintain our focus on the gospel. 
You can't advance the gospel if you lose it. And you can't advance the gospel very well at all if you're not operating out of it. That's the point. That's the point this morning. Because here's the deal. And I'm going to say this probably five different ways throughout this sermon. But you cannot, you cannot serve people if you're so busy trying to impress them. If you feel like you have to impress others in order to be okay. If you feel like you have to prove yourself to others, you will be more concerned with proving yourself to them that you won't be able to serve them well. You won't be able to hold out this message of grace. You will betray the message of free acceptance if you do not live in it. That's the point. We won't be able to work together if we're, if we're busy trying to one-up one another all the time because we feel like we have to outshine in order to really be okay. The gospel knocks all of that junk out. The, the, the gospel is meant to declutter our souls of this kind of existence. So we're going to focus on two points this morning. Freedom in the gospel and the focus of the gospel. We got, we got, to, we got to live up into the freedom of the gospel, y'all. And we have to maintain our focus on what the gospel is. Many people make claims about what the gospel is. But if it has anything to do with who you are and how you are, it's not the gospel. How you act is not the gospel. The gospel is a one-time historic development of God in Jesus Christ. It's not about how you do things. Now, you can, you can act out of accord with the gospel, and you can be called out for that. But how you act and what you do is not the gospel. So we have to maintain focus. So we, we begin with the freedom of the gospel. And if you look at verse 1, Paul, Paul says, finally. And he's trying to bring this letter to a close. He, he, he's continuing into the next stage of his case for their partnership in the gospel. And he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And what he means by same things here is that Paul is staying on message. The same message that he gave them when he was with them in person. See Acts chapter 16 for the, the beginning of the development of the church in Philippi. The same message he held out to them there where the Philippian jailer said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. That same message that he spoke to them in person is the message that he's going to continue to advance in this writing right here. And it's no trouble to him, and it's a safeguard for them. They must know the freedom of the gospel. Why? Because they had opponents. They had people who were opposing them, and that's where verse 2 is going. There were people who were dogging the apostle throughout his entire ministry. They were known as the Judaizers. And who these people were they were people who identified as Christian, but what they wanted to do is they wanted to add their Jewish cultural and religious uh, commitments into the Christian gospel so that people had to have a Jesus plus faith, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus obeying these certain dietary restrictions. Paul would later say, these folks say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
They said, if you trust in Jesus and you get circumcised and you perform these particular religious rites and you have the right dietary restrictions, then you are in good with God. And so what they would do, Paul would go around preaching and everywhere Paul went, the Judaizers were soon to follow. And they would come behind Paul and they would say, oh, the apostle, the apostle Paul was here? Yeah, his message is incomplete. His message is incomplete because he's telling you that you can be accepted by God simply based upon what Jesus has done. But that cannot be. You have to perform. And you have to do these certain things. If you're a Gentile, you have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. That was the message that they sent. You have to take on our culture before you can be a legitimate Christian. And here's the, here's the root of the problem of these opponents. They were scandalized by the message of grace. They were scandalized that wicked, evil people could be loved by God. It was scandalous to them. This cannot be. And we hear that same scandal today, right? People that find it hard to believe this idea of grace. Why? You know why? Because in every other facet of life, people say you must earn this. You have to deserve it. I mean, how many of us, after so many times of someone letting us down, screwing things up, we say, you know what, I'm, I just can't with you anymore. Because you have to maintain a certain standard of behavior in order for me to deal with you. We know what it's like to be on the other end of that. Like, I just can't with this person anymore. I can't. I just, I, I, I have, we all, we all have a line. We all know what it's like to be scandalized by grace. And that's what these opponents were doing. And this is what motivated them. They could not take pure grace, pure sovereign grace, as the way that it was. They had a pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps message. And so Paul is warning his friends. Listen, and this is appropriate. Paul always gave the gospel. He gave the message. He gave the truth. But then he would give a warning and say, there are people who are not going to want this message. There are people who are going to want, they'll have itching ears. That means they want preachers to tell them what they want to hear already. In modern day parlance, it's called confirmation bias. You only listen to the people who, who say the things that you already believe, whether they're true or not. No one's allowed to challenge your categories. Well, Paul was challenging all the categories with this message of grace. And he was telling them, people are going to buck against this. They are going to reject this. But you must, you must persevere. You must remain steadfast. They made spirituality, these Judaizers made spirituality all about building up your resume to win God's acceptance. The idea that God could embrace you, that God could save you, that God could bless you based upon nothing to do with you was hard to believe. You know how it comes out these days? In a lot of worship music, interestingly enough. When the praises go up, the blessings come down, what kind of foolishness is that? <laughs> For real. Where's Jesus in that? When the praises go up, the blessings come down. You know what the gospel says? The blessing of eternity has already come down. 
And so now we send the praises up. This is not a quid pro quo kind of faith. You give me this, I give you that. This is not bartering. We don't barter with God. It's sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. If you are... If you are responsible for sewing a single stitch in the garment of salvation, you will be, you'll be, you'll be ruined because you won't be able to do it. I heard one theologian one time say, if, if, it, if you could lose it, you would. If you could lose it, you would. If it's, if it's based upon you to get it, you're in trouble. If it's based upon you to maintain it, you're in trouble. And so am I. And that's why it's so important to push back against this anti-gospel message. In verse 3, Paul calls the way of his opponents, listen to me, he calls their way confidence in the flesh. Do you see that in verse 3? He says they are making the claim that they are really God's people because they perform these certain duties. To God. They, they, they have these certain religious accomplishments before God. And he's saying, but they're not the people. Of, the people of God are those who put no confidence in the flesh. Do you know what confidence in the flesh is? It's simply a way of saying this. By virtue of who I am and what I do, God will accept me. God will bless me. God will work on my behalf. Sure, nobody's perfect, but through my good intentions, God will accept me one day. God will bless me and God will work on my behalf. But this is what Paul is saying, y'all. God's people are the ones who put no confidence in anything about themselves. Rather, look at the text. God's people are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the deal. You cannot boast that your performance has made you acceptable before God. And at the same time, boast that Christ has made you acceptable before God. The two views are incompatible. You cannot simultaneously boast in yourself and boast in Christ. You cannot simultaneously have confidence that what you do gets you in God's good favor and boast in Christ. That's, that's the fundamental discord here. But Paul is not finished. He has detailed the fact that the Judaizers regularly pull out their resumes in order to rehearse their credentials, all right? This is what they do. They pull out their credentials, and they rehearse them. They, they pull out their resume, and then they use it as a way of leveraging and having superiority over the people around them. And they're telling them, this is the way that you get in good with God. They're gloating over the Gentiles. Their resume was meant to lend credence to their legalistic message. They were saying, look at how good a people we are. Our message must be true. All right? This is what they're doing. So this is what Paul does. And you got to understand what he's doing here. Paul decides to fight fire with fire. He says, oh, they want to pull out their resumes. All right, we can do that. Let me, let me go back and pull out my old resume. And then what Paul does is he chumps them. He shows them that their resumes are small potatoes relative to his. He's going to engage in some mock boasting. He's pretending to boast now. He, and he, he's laying it out through the lenses of the way that he used to think about life. 
And then what he's going to do is he's going to give them his resume. He's going to trump their resume. And then he's going to get on the other side and he's going to tear his resume up and say it's worthless. Do you see how he's going to make the argument here? He's going to make the case. You aren't more righteous than I was. You aren't a harder worker than I was. And I count everything that I did as garbage. In comparison to knowing Christ. So let's, let's understand what he's doing here. Verse 4. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay? If you are confident in your achievements, Washingtonian, with lots of stuff on your resume, you confident in that, in that credential you have from working on the hill? Are, are you confident in, in, in boastful, and even within, you know, humble brag, and who you get to work with? On a regular basis. If you have anything on your resume that makes you feel like you are something, Paul is saying, I got more. I got more. And then he lays it out. He compares resumes. Any advantage to which they try to lay claim, I could, I could do so more. Here's his resume. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was a circumcision by the book. He was a letter of the law Jew from the cradle and was nursed in the faith of his ancestors. In other words, he's claiming confidence. Formerly, he claimed confidence in his origins. He came from one of those families of the people of Israel. Paul is an authentic member of the elect people of God. He's not some second-class convert who was a Gentile who, who later gained membership to the people of God. He was a true-blooded Jew. He formerly had confidence in his ethnicity. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a part of the special tribe and was regarded with particular esteem because he was a Benjamite. The Benjamite territory contained the holy city and the temple. The tribe of Benjamin re remained loyal to David after the, di the, the disruption of the monarchy. This tribe held the place of honor in battle. And the very first king of Israel was a Benjamite. And Saul even was his namesake. His Hebrew name was Saul, he, was, he carried the name of the first king of Israel. He had special pride in his tribal association. This was confidence in his social standing. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. He's not of mixed blood. He wasn't mixed with the Gentiles. He was reared in the ancestral language of his people, Hebrew. And Aramaic at a time where fewer Jews actually had command of the mother tongue. And this was a point of pride. And not only that, by calling himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, it says that he resisted the, the influence of Greek culture, Hellenism. Outside culture did not get its grip on him. He remained true in the face of a changing culture. He was true to the ancestral faith, the old culture, and he commanded honor. This this shows that Paul had confidence formerly in his, in his culture. These qualifications that he's listed up to this point, listen. These qualifications speak primarily about Paul's inherited identity. Now, he's going to turn a corner in the list and he's going to talk about those things on his resume that he could boast of as personal achievements. These had to do with things that he is. Everything he's listed so far. But now he's going to talk about the things that he, that he has done. His personal achievements. As to the law, a Pharisee. 
And this speaks to Paul's religious devotion and theological acumen. Because the Pharisees were the most rigorous of the, of the sects of Judaism. They were, they were punctiliar with the law, every jot and tittle. They were the ones who took not only the, the, the written law of, of, of the Old Testament scriptures, but they, they maintained the oral law, all of the other traditions and all of the writings of all the rabbis, they were deep in it. They knew it all. They had command of it. And they were able to argue with tight, tightly woven arguments everything that the rabbis of old had said. It was, there was a, a, a theological prowess that he had. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for his faith that he expressed his devotion in the vigilant persecution of the early church. It shows you his religious intensity. He had confidence in that. He wasn't lukewarm. He wasn't, I'll go to church if, if there isn't a good brunch thing going on. He was intense, religious intensity. He was a guy that was just so fired up. He was a leader. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now look, finally, this is the final item on his resume. As judged by the Jewish standard of adherence to the Mosaic law, he was faultless, impeccable in his own eyes, in the eyes of his colleagues. Some rabbis held out the possibility that there was a that there was the ability to be blameless through a strict observance of the law, provided that performance of the law was perfect and complete. And according to the way they interpreted the law, they believed that someone could actually be blameless according to the law. And Paul is saying, I qualified for that designation. In other words, he had confidence in his superior piety, that he was more moral and religiously scrupulous than anyone else around him. These are all the things that he, he boasted in. He had confidence in these things. Look at Paul's resume. Look at his origins, his ethnicity, his social standing, his cultural honor, his theological prowess, his religious intensity, his superior piety. These used to be the basis of his confidence. And the text is provoking us to say, what is yours? What is your boast? What, do you, what is your confidence before God in your heart? Is it in your own faithfulness and commitment to God? Is it that you are a pretty decent person or that you're well-intentioned? I mean, well, I got a good heart. Really? Really? Is this the boast that you have deep within? What is your confidence? Look at the confidence that Paul could have in his former life. His resume was untouchable. Nobody could outshine him, either religiously or ethically or morally or otherwise. But look what he does here with this mock boasting. He sets us up to understand what distinguishes the Christian gospel from every other faith. And that brings us to the focus of the gospel. In verses 7 through 9, this is the focus of the gospel. 
But whatever gain I had, no matter what was on my resume, no matter what credentials I had, no matter what achievements I had, no matter who I got to work with formally, no matter what kind of high and mighty people I got to rub shoulders with, no matter how awesome uh, publishing I had in the, in the most recent paper, no matter all of the things that were on my resume, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, all of those worldly achievements. Those things have been demoted. I no longer love them like I love Christ. I no longer need them like I need Christ. I no matter work for them like I work for Christ. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying the center has shifted. I have, I have deoccupied that throne where achievement used to sit and rule over my heart. And now I've enthroned Christ. And now he makes all the calls about who I am, who I'm becoming, and what I'm doing, and what I'm committed to, and where I spend my energies, and what I give my attention to, and how I think, and how I feel. He changed it all in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not be found in the latest journal. Not be found in the particular club that I want to be a part of. Not be found in the particular agency I want to work for. Not be found in any number of other things, but to be found in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't nice if you get them. We have a theology of vocation. Work faithfully. Do well. Do for the common good. But all of that compared to Christ, Paul says is skubala, which is Greek for excrement. That's how he esteems his old credentials in light of who Jesus is. Do you understand the personality of Jesus? Do you understand the greatness and the glory of this Jesus? Your accomplishments will seem great until you see Jesus as he is. When you see him as he is, then those things will take their proper place. So long as you have a small Jesus, your accomplishments will seem like something. And they will become a ground for your boasting. But when you're, you'll know that you're really seeing Jesus as he is when those things don't really matter to you. They don't become the ground of your confidence. They don't become the ground of, of being whole and being well. You don't need to achieve and be special and get a blue ribbon for participation to be okay when you're in him. I love this text. This is, this is Christianity. This is the difference between Christianity and everything else. Not having a righteousness of my own. That's the difference. Nothing else in all of the world says that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from obedience to the law or a standard. But that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the difference between Christianity and everything else. And you know what that means? Christianity says this. You need to repent not just for the bad things that you've done. 
You need to repent of the good things that you've done that you've made into means of gaining his acceptance. You need to repent of all the times that you've done good things and you're leaning on your righteousness and saying, yeah, that's what we call self-righteousness. And it comes in many different forms. We need to repent of our own righteousness because we have none. It's a sham. It's a farce. You do not have righteousness. Except for in Christ. He's the only one who could really present us faultless before the throne of glory. That's why I pronounce that benediction over you on a lot of Sundays. He gets all the glory. Do you see what Paul is saying is that your resume is really a rap sheet. It's a detailed list of all the things that you have done that have diminished the value of Christ. Your resume becomes a rap sheet when you try to use it to, to gain God's acceptance. It's all the ways that you've devalued Christ and said, no, 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 I don't need the death of Christ to secure me. Look at this good thing on my resume. I'm a good person. No, 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 no. I don't need the righteous life of Christ to make me whole. I'm well-intentioned. I'm a decent person. Look, what Paul is saying is that old list of resume of resume accomplishments, when you try to use it as a means to getting in God's good favor, they become a liability. Here's the deal. Though your resume says, I'm driven, the reality is that you've been ambitiously flying through life, busying up your schedule with little, if any, reference to God. That's what your drivenness amounts to. Though your resume says, I'm a hard worker, the reality is that you've been trying to impress God with your deeds and diligence and pridefully looking down your nose at other people who don't perform as well as you do. Though your resume says leadership qualities, the reality is that we have been trying to run our own lives and we have resisted the call to follow God in his leadership. But the Christian resume, not having a righteousness of my own. Here is the gospel exchange. By faith, Christ takes your rap sheet and gives you his resume. That's the good news. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's not about you. It's got nothing to do with who you are. It has nothing to do with how you are. This is the gospel. Jesus says, give me your rap sheet. He pays the penalty. He gives you his resume. You know what his resume says? I'm driven by the Father's love to do that which pleases him at all times in order to serve and bless the other. He puts that on your resume. I'm a hard worker, Jesus says, willing and able to fulfill the entirety of God's law on behalf of my people in order to redeem them. I have leadership qualities. I have blazed a trail from death to glory, and I am preparing a place for my people to follow. His resume holds all of the virtues. It's not because of your many sacrifices, friends. It's because of his one sacrifice that you're accepted by God. It's not because you tried. It's because Jesus died. Come on. It's not because you tried. You made an attempt. It's because Jesus said it is finished. He has an accomplishment. Don't rest upon your attempts. Rest upon his accomplishments. Finished. Done. No more to add. It's not because you gave your best. It's because the Father gave his best. 
That is the ground of Christian confidence. That is the Christian's resume. If the issue of righteousness is not settled for us at a heart level, our partnership in the gospel is in jeopardy. That's the main point I'm bringing here, y'all. Here's why. If you are not free to forget yourself to serve others, then you'll be busy trying to prove to others that you're good, that you're big and you're not small, that no one can do me like that because they know who I am. When you're in Christ and you have a righteousness that's not your own, you don't care. I don't need that. I don't need them to. Pra- I don't need you to praise me. Anything, any good thing can be turned into an idolatrous thing if you need it to be right, to be whole. Ministry can become that. If I use this ministry in order to be okay, if I use this ministry to say, look, God, look what I did, it's worthless. (laughs) Good things become idolatrous things when we use those things to try and gain his acceptance, to try and gain his blessing. And what I'm saying is this. Faithful partnership in the gospel means that we must more and more live up into this freedom, that we are loved because God is good and faithful and gracious and merciful and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why you're loved. You're not loved because you're good, because you're successful. And when you know that freedom, you will maintain your focus on the gospel, knowing that nothing else can trump that message. Nothing else is more important than that message. Nothing else is more critical or urgent than that message. And seeing other people come to hear that message. Yes, we are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior. That's the gospel. That Jesus died. Our rescue required nothing short of the death of the Son of God. Can you really depend upon your resume of good deeds and high accomplishments? Is that really going to cover the kind of sin that sends the Son of God to the cross? No. We were so bad that Jesus had to die for us. But God is so good that he was glad to send his son to die for us. That's, that's good news. And that's the gospel we must maintain in our focus. And that's the gospel that we must extend to the people around us. It's not bad to do good things, to have achievements, to be the successful people that you are. What my warning is, is never allow those things to trump the resume that is yours by faith in Christ, the gospel. Never allow yourself to be more identified by those things than you are by Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the good news that we, as your people, are those who don't have a righteousness of our own, but righteousness through faith. And it's because we have righteousness by faith in Christ that we will be raised up. That the old resume is gone because we have the grace of repentance and now we have true righteousness in Christ and that righteousness leads to resurrection and the ability to endure suffering for the sake of your name.
So, Lord, we pray that you would help us, each and every one of us, to deal with that ache in our souls for righteousness. We all feel the need to be righteous. But help us not to look in false directions to try and gain righteousness, to try and be righteous through our own behaviors. And help us not to lay that heavy yoke on the people around us. Help us to be a people that holds out that scandalous message of grace. That no one is so far gone. No one is so broken that they're beyond the reach of your grace. And no one is so good that they're beyond the need of your grace. Help us to believe this more and more. And to enact this in the way we live life together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.